Greetings, this is Gary Rogowski for Splinters, a podcast from the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Well, I'd say a lot has changed in a couple of weeks since we last spoke. The world has flipped over. And today's talk was going to be about balance, and it's a uh, difficult thing to achieve, I think, in this atmosphere today. The right balance between truth and fiction, and truths and semi-truths, or lies. It's a, it's a strange place, and with so much access that we now have, it is even more difficult, I think, to maintain a sense of balance. I was going to buy a newspaper today, and I thought, you know, <laughs> I feel pretty good. I, I, I have enough information at my disposal. I'm taking care of my health and staying away from others and uh, doing everything I can. I don't think I need to know all the details of what's happened in the world the past 24 hours. <laughs> balance is a tough one. Balance is a tough one. Let me tell you a story. This is going to show up in my new book called, uh, well, we have a working title, let's just say. This is going to show up in my new book. The book is about creativity and failure. And in this chapter, I tell a story, illustrative story, I think. Anyway, it was a long time ago. I had I had moved my, my shop, my studio, my school to an old warehouse that I had, that I had bought. It took me three years to find and figure out how to finance it and come up with a down payment and hoarding my money to do so. And this old barn had been constructed in 1908 as a storage facility. And it was, you know, wood structures, one brick wall I share with a neighbor. and It had trusses. And these trusses held up a uh, long I-beam, about a 28-foot long I-beam that hit a curve. There was a curved I-beam and uh, then another straight run out to the north wall. And um, so at some point, this this building had been a machine shop or something, I think. And I took down the curved I-beam because I had no use for it. I wanted to trade it for some money or I think I traded it for some wood. And I wanted to get this 28-foot section down. And I had rented a scissor lift, you know, so I could get up underneath the truss about, I don't know, 12, 12, 15 feet off the ground. And I had a helper. But my helper, Robert, wasn't all that consistent in showing up on time. And I was in a hurry that day. So this rented scissor lift sat idle and I needed to get this I-beam down. So I thought about it and I came up with a plan. So what I did was position the lift below the center of the I-beam. And I raised up the lift. And I nudged it right up under the I-beam and under the truss. And it probably moved the ceiling up a little bit. But then I climbed down the side of the scissor lift and got out my long ladder and moved to one end of the I-beam and crawled up the ladder and unbolted the I-beam from the westernmost truss. Then I moved the ladder over and stood it up and unbolted the other end of the I-beam from the easternmost truss. Now the I-beam sat perfectly supported on the scissor lift, and all I have to do now is climb back up the side of the scissor lift and unbolt the I-beam from the last center truss, and I did that. And then I waited. Nothing happened. Nothing bad happened. No gravity built pay. I, I had the lift perfectly positioned under the truss and under the beam. So I climbed back down, 
and brought the beam all the way down on the lift. No trouble at all. This was great. I was pumped. This was just great. Now, on the floor, I had erected two wooden pyres of 4x4s and 4x6s and all sorts of chunks of wood that I thought we would support the I-beam on. So I figured that Robert and I would lift up one end of the beam and walk it onto the wooden supports and then get the other end and lift it off and set her down on the floor. So I was looking at the I-beam and I checked to see how stable it was on top of the lift. I could move it just a little bit by myself, so I did, trying to lift and lever it closer to the edge of the scissor lift. Turns out it wasn't that stable at all. As I moved the beam, it started to tip over, and I got out of the way, and the I-beam toppled over and headed down for the concrete floor. I thought I was going to break the floor. It made such a noise. I waited for the floor to crack, but it clattered down made an awful racket, but it didn't break. didn't break the floor. Instead, it collapsed all the wood I had stacked up, and the dang beam was lying there on the floor. So I had this 28-foot-long I-beam right in the middle of my floor with no way to move it, and I had almost dropped it on myself, and I was kind of, well, I was kind of pissed about my stupidity and lack of patience. I should have left it there on the left and waited for help, but I didn't. Instead, I had an I-beam, which had scattered all my wooden blocks all over the floor and was sitting right there in the midst of this pile of rubble. I walked up to the I-beam. Because I was still a little bit ticked at myself, I kicked it. God dang stupid thing, I muttered. Now, you'd think I would have stubbed a toe or broken my foot, wrenched a knee, but I, I just gave it a kick to, you know, to show my displeasure. What do you think happened? The I-beam. The 28-foot-long I-beam. The steel I-beam that could hold up another ton of steel. All by itself, this I-beam that had almost broken the concrete of my floor, this I-beam rotated on the floor. It rotated. It spun like it was on a point, like it was a silent, giant, calder mobile, only it was an I-beam spinning. The whole 28-foot-long I-beam pivoted like a butter knife on the table, sitting on a pea. It rotated like on the floor like the big hand of a clock, slowly. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. It was balanced somehow, just right, and it rotated with no effort at all. I was, I was stunned. I walked over to the other side of the I-beam, and just for fun, I thought, let's kick this, see what happens. I couldn't believe it. It moved back to where I had been. It was perfectly balanced on this block of wood, and I could move the whole 28-foot length of it with a shove of my foot. It was astonishing. I couldn't believe my eyes and my luck or my stupidity my great good fortune is causing and witnessing this. I'd almost killed myself when I tipped over the apple cart and pounded that beam down onto the floor. And it ended up being balanced like a bar trick toothpick. It was amazing. And all this came from a failure. I was in a hurry. I tried to do something I shouldn't have done. But I learned something. I think that was really cool and really important. I could move big things if I knew how to balance them. And they could move easily if they were balanced properly. This was a very cool discovery. And this is how failure can work. It can get you to try a new variation, see where that leads, or it can show you something completely new and different and astonishing. Balance. So I was driving out to Gorge. Along the way, you may not know this, but along the way there's a spot Oh, it's about, I don't know, 10, 15 miles outside of Portland. And it's a state park in Rooster Rock State Park, actual state park. But it's right on the on the Columbia River. And there's a, a large rock there. 
called Rooster Rock. Rooster Rock has been a climbing magnet for decades. And in fact, in my book, Handmade, I talk about when Wheaton and I went up to climb Rooster Rock. We had gotten our ropes and we had a book and we walked out to Rooster Rock. I don't know how tall it is. Let me give you an idea. It's um, 75, 100 feet tall. And it's just a basalt column stuck on the banks of the Columbia River. So Wheaton and I went out there to climb it. And uh, we got out there and we're sitting at the base of it, staring up and reading the description in the climbing book. And you go here and you can do this. And it's all, it's not a free climb. There are there are bolts, I think, along the, the route, but yet we, we, we're having trouble trying to figure out where that route was. And we we're staring at it and thinking about it and thinking about it and staring at it. And all of a sudden, these two boys uh, from the Army base showed up. Out in Eastern Oregon, there's an Army base, and they showed up, and they had gear up and down their bodies, man. They had helmets and ropes and extra ropes and pitons and, you know, all sorts of gear to climb up this rock. And Wheaton and I are sitting there with a rope going, huh, maybe we'd, maybe we underestimated ourselves or overestimated ourselves. So uh, we said, you know, it's starting to rain. There's a couple of pitter pats of moisture coming down. We thought, well, yeah, maybe it's, uh, yeah, maybe, we, maybe this is not the best day for, for our climb. So you guys go on ahead. <laughs> we got the hell out of there and went down the road and tried another spot, something that we could manage. Uh, we had bit off way more than we could chew, and, and it was fine that we didn't attempt it that day. It was just fine. Well, I'm driving down the road yesterday. I'm driving down the road, and it's a sunny day, and I'm driving by Rooster Rock, and I have never seen anyone climb it before. I've you know, other than that one day with me and Wheaton and those two two guys from the Army base. But yesterday, on top of Rooster Rock, was a climber all by himself. Standing there all by himself. I couldn't believe it. I, I was wailing on my horn in the truck and just, I was, I, you know, I wanted to get out and applaud. It was, I was so amazed by his achievement. I just thought that was so cool. I don't know what that has to do with anything. It just it's just one of those things where you go, God dang, that's good for you. I'm I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it when I was a youth. I can't do it now, but I'm sure happy to see that you did it. That just felt great. Let's talk about balance. I think it's uh one of those things we struggle with. It's one of the things I struggle with. What is that? What is the right balance to have in, in the shop, at the bench, in my life, in the world? I start to think about standards and achieving those standards. And then I think about how hard it is to achieve those standards. And I bounce back and forth between what is good and what is good enough. Where do you draw that line? What line do you draw to say, all right, you can stop now. That's good enough good enough for a bench or it's good enough for me or I'm not being paid enough that's good enough where do you where do you draw that line and is there something of value to be gained by putting in effort that is not visible or there is compensation for and on the flip side 
do we lose something when we start letting our standards slide, when we say, ah, that's good enough. That's, you know, that's fine. That's good enough. You know, the saying is that uh, when the Japanese build something, it has to be perfect. When the Germans build something, it has to be excellent. When Americans build something, it's, yeah, it's good enough. It's good enough. Let's get by. And I find that I, I have trouble with that idea. There's a story in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a book by Robert Persig that you should all read. And he goes in to get his motorcycle fixed by some guys. And this is just a job. These guys are just motorheads and they got a job and they don't care about quality. doesn't matter if they shove parts together and something breaks as they broke off a bolt on uh, Persig's motor. doesn't matter to them. They're just doing a job. They just get through the day. That's good enough. Give me my money. I'm out of here. But a craftsperson is someone who decides that each time he or she performs a task, it has to get better. That's a different standard. It's not good enough just to be good enough. That kind of lack of quality creates problems for the craftsperson. How do you justify putting time into something that you know isn't good enough? And the flip side of that question is, how do you justify putting time into something that you won't get paid for. So where is that Where is that line, and how do we decide? Where do we draw it? Is there real value in this waste of effort? And I think about this for my own work, or the work of my students. My, my beginning residents have great ideas, grand ideas of what they would like to produce, but they don't have the skills yet. They're learning. And it can be very frustrating for them. I can see that. Things that they thought, you know, would take, Oh, <laughs> a month. Maybe we'll take two months. And it's my job to encourage them as I can and tell them what they did right and did well so that they want to go back and do it even better next time. They know already that it's not at the standard that they had dreamt of. But will they want to go back when they fail to, to hit that mark? And I can't answer that question. I hope they will. But that's something that the craftsperson has to decide there at the bench. Oh, I screwed that up. Yeah, it's good enough. Or I screwed that up and I got to fix that. It may seem, I think, that there's a certain elitism to craft work. And to that I say, good. That's good. That's a good thing. It's good to be an elitist when it comes to being the best at it that you can be. A standard of excellence, I think, is an important thing to pay attention to. And without it, we end up with something a good deal less than what we had hoped for. My analogy is uh, a symphony orchestra. Do you want a symphony orchestra or do you want a kazoo orchestra? I mean, kazoos are fun, but it doesn't take a lot of skill to hum. <laughs> and it's great. You know, everyone can be in a kazoo band. That's great. No standards. No real qualifications. No symphonic orchestra either. And so that elitism is important in order to achieve certain standards. And, and of course, one of the things that we face nowadays, if we survive as a species through this pandemic, is, um, and I think we will, but if we give up our standards of quality, what do we lose? And I think that's one of the the battles that craftspeople have to wage now in the, in, the, in the land of Ikea, 
in the land of get her done standards of quality. It's something that, for better and for worse, was present when the cathedrals of Europe were built. The la- I'm not sure if it's the last one, but the one that's in Iceland, the one that's in Reykjavik, uh, the Hallgrimskirkja Cathedral was built in like 40 years. That's a record pace. You know, most of them took eh, three, four, five centuries. You know, they took their time. They wanted to get it right. <laughs> but there were other things, obviously, that were at, at play at that time. You know, you had the... You had the church, you had, you know, the fear of hell, you had, you know, religion in, in its many guises, and uh, part of its role was to keep the peasants in line. And yet those peasants, those craftspeople who did the masonry, who did the carpentry, who did the carving, the tapestries, uh, the stained glass who did all that work, we're doing it for peanuts. We're doing it for nothing. Some of it, I, I assume, was being done for the greater glory of God, as I'm sure uh, some of the slaves who built the pyramids felt. But, you know, really, it was just cheap labor. And that's one of the things that allowed these incredible structures to be built, cheap labor. And so here's a craftsman today, or trying to decide, all right, uh, how do I get paid for this amazing, excellent work? And that's a difficult thing to negotiate in this world. We are so willing to accept less. I mean, one only needs to think about architecture and what's being given to us these days in the name of modernism to, to realize that it's, it's very little to do with building pieces that represent our culture and will last for centuries. It has nothing to do with that any longer. It's about star architecture. It's about developers. It's about dollars per square foot. And the buildings that get thrown up these days, well, they're, they're kind of sad. They're kind of sad, in my opinion. And it's very difficult to argue that we could continue to do this kind of great work, like the Hallgrimskirkja Cathedral and Reykjavik, which is really grand on the outside. Uh, looks like a iceberg. But can we continue to produce at that level? It's very difficult. So we take it upon ourselves, do we craftspeople, to keep standards of quality alive. It's a mission that is a difficult one. I'll just put it that way. It's a difficult mission. Look, if you accept less, I'll give you less. We live in a world where we continue to accept less. We call it better than ever. It's better than ever. No, it's not. It's less. I just finished reading Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. I recommend it. Good read and some very interesting thoughts about us and our loss of control. We've given it over. We've given our lives over to those smartphones. And our addictive natures, we love it. We love those intermittent rewards. We love those little dings and the likes and as a result, there's a loss in our civility to one another, community, conversation. Remember when you used to call people up? Now you just send them a text. I don't, I don't want to hear their voice. I don't really. Oh, I hope was. I hope I was going to get your answering machine. Used to be that people would walk across town to have a conversation with someone in in business, and you could see, you could see their eyes. There's none. There's none of the the 
problems with a with an email that we that we face today. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, that's a kind of a harsh thing to say, and but in conversation, you could see his eyes smiling. It was a joke. It was nothing. Things get so often misinterpreted via the the word. People are not skillful at communicating via <laughs> via text. It takes uh, good practice in order to communicate with words. Oh, it's it's tough. We've lost a lot by being connected. It means when we are always connected, we're always disconnected in another sense. There's a guy in my neighborhood, I never see him without a phone. He is always staring at his phone. He he keeps missing the walk. (laughs) If you go off for a walk, you're walking the dog, but you got your face in your phone, you're missing the day. And that's, all right, fine, maybe that's his only chance to read the news and there's something about uh, raising your head up and looking around as you walk, because there's always things to discover. There are always new things to discover. I walked the Beagle around my neighborhood for 15 years, and I'd be walking down the street. I'd walk down God knows how many times before and go, oh, I never saw that before. <laughs> I never saw that before. Because you got your head lost, or you're paying attention to something else, or you're studying the sidewalk or the clouds, or... There are always things to be seen as you move. But if you stay connected to that dang phone, it's, it's really tough to, uh, to get a sense of things. And I think that's one of the problems that we face today is this instant media. And so we know how many people have died in Italy, and we know how many tests there were in Korea, and we know this and we know that. I don't know. Sometimes I just say, what's happening right in front of my face? I understand. I, I need to know know the importance of the virus and my ability to get it or transmit it unknowingly. But I try to back up a little bit and get a little balance and say, what's happening right in front of me right now? When someone needs a hand, you're going to give them a hand, you know, because we're, we're <laughs> the world has shrunk. Isn't that an interesting thing? The world has absolutely shrunk. Such a big place, and it has shrunk. The problem with all of our devices, our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter, is that we supposedly feel connected to our friends, but it's done in a way that distances us at the same time. So we find out the news for the day, but we don't actually connect with anyone either. Well, you may be in the same group of jugglers or the same group of concrete layers or whatever it is. Uh, as Facebook would put it, as uh, 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 in a kazoo band. But we don't speak person to person. We get these nuggets of social approval, but the person-to-person contact is lost. And we accept that the substitute for it, the social media approval, is enough. Cal Newport points out in his book that the most active social media users are usually the ones who experience the most disconnection and the most loneliness in their own lives. This digital world is amazing, but we've lost something at the same time. Cal uses a quote from Blaise Pascal. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And that's what we do at the bench. We may not be sitting. We may not be quiet if you're me. You know, there's a loud conversation going on all the time with myself. But to sit quietly with ourselves and think. This is important stuff. 
and then to get out into the world and communicate with others. Not digitally, not by text, face-to-face, six feet away, but to communicate with them. This is important, too. Somehow or other, we've got to try and find that balance in the world between our digital selves and our real selves and our real world and our online world and the news we get and assimilate and try to make sense of things with. Try to find some kind of balance in this craziness. Not easy. I understand that. It's not easy these days. Do your best. And I hope, fervently I hope, to be seeing you down the road soon. Check out the studio, northwestwoodworking.com, and I'll be putting out some more newsletters and stuff with some nuggets from the new book. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.